Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 11 for May 4th, 2010. Yes, May 4th, and uh, as uh, maybe some of our listeners will know, is the International uh, Star Wars Day. As established by George Lucas himself. Uh, I doubt that, but... (laughs) Who who would come up with this? Star (laughs) Wars Day. Well, think about it. It, The the whole thing you're supposed to do on on today is say, May the 4th be with you. Because it's May 4th. Oh, that's terrible. They didn't do that intentionally, (laughs) did they? Did you just make that up? No, somebody sent me an email today that said that. And I've heard May the 4th be with you before, but it's usually uh, a July 4th reference. Uh-huh. <laughs> but, That's uh, pretty funny. But somebody actually sent it to me today, and I'm like, hey, today is May 4th. That is pretty funny. Cool. Cool. <laughs> All okay. right. So uh, what are we doing today, Ken? Oh, we are going into a really cool offshoot of the uh, Star Trek timeline, universe, etc. We are going to visit... Star Trek New Frontier with a very interesting set of new character, new and old characters um, following the chron- chronicling the adventures of uh, Captain Calhoun and the uh, Starship Excalibur. Yeah, so uh, I remember when these uh, books first started coming out because it was back when I was really big into uh, reading all the Star Trek novels. Um, and uh, when this came out, it was uh, by Peter David, who was one of my favorite uh, Star Trek authors. Mind and I, rem- I remember when they started coming out, and they released them in these little, little paperbacks. So they were like kind of like chapter books. There was maybe about maybe uh, less than a hundred pages per book, and uh, they were like three dollars. So you get like a few chapters for three dollars, and then next month you would go and pay another three dollars to get the next uh, hundred pages or so um they did that for the first uh at least four books and then i think starting with the fifth book they were like normal novel length but uh no i i was totally bought into all this uh you know because buying a little chapter that's just like reading a comic book (laughs) and here you go they eventually come up with the comic book yeah so a few years later after the the series was out for a while they uh they actually came out with a comic book series. Or actually, it was just a one-shot done by Wildstorm, which we'll be reviewing here in a little bit. Cool. So that one came out. It's called Double Time, and it came out uh, – it was the seventh – it was technically the seventh story of the New Frontier series. So there was seven novels uh, prior to this comic book coming out. So kind of put it in uh, – in continuity there. All right, so uh, Star Trek New Frontier, uh, produced by Wildstorm, which is an offshoot of uh, DC Comics. Uh, and this issue came out in November 2000. Um, I don't remember. the. I don't have the, the actual date it came out, but uh, November 2000 is the cover date. All right, so uh, we're going to do something a little different here. We're actually going to read the, um, the creative team that put it together. Uh, we're going to do that from now on. 
Uh, we didn't do it at the beginning because the Gold Key uh, series didn't have the writers and the and the, the artists uh, credited, but these do, so we might as well give them credit for uh, their hard work. So the creative team consists of uh, writer Peter David, penciler Mike Collins, inker David A. Roche, colorist by Wildstorm FX and Dan Brown, letterers Nagmi Zand, editor Jeff Mariette, and cover artist was Brian Stelfries. All right, so it starts off with Calhoun standing on a uh, planet. It's obviously uh, the aftermath of a huge uh, battle. Uh, the planet's name is uh, Harish, H-A-R-E-S-H. He, uh, looking at the bodies, he finds a uh, body of a Redeemer priest and knows that the Redeemer priest is the cause of all this, uh, this death. And he picks up a rock to kill the, uh, to just smash the, the, the head in of this guy uh, just for, to, to get it out of the system. And uh, Commander Shelby shows up and stops him. Uh, then uh, she tells him that he's not to blame and he can't be into two places at once. And so then we get a nice little flashback to what happened before. Uh, you're aboard the USS Excalibur. Uh, they're en route to Harish because uh, the planet is about to be redeemed by some uh, religious zealots that uh, come to the planet. And if you don't follow their new religion, they just kill you. So uh, as they're... Uh, heading towards the planet they get a uh, distress call and the distress call is from a uh, world called envy e-n-e-v and it's about to be ravaged by this uh, magnetic storm and all the inhabitants will be killed so uh, the excalibur shows up or they make a detour head over to that planet and they somehow beam all the uh, residents of the planet onto the ship and then once the storm passes they beam them all back down and as they're beaming down, the, their leader says uh, they'll never forget him for, for saving their their, uh, their lives. It's not a whole planet. It was just a colony on a planet because they, they, they reference it to be something like uh, Australia where uh, – Yeah, right. So the, these are like criminals or, or cast-offs. So the, 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 the planet that they're actually from don't really care about these guys. So they're just going to let the, uh, the storm destroy them. So anyway, so uh, like I said – we have we have uh, Captain Calhoun saves them, knowing that he'll be late to get to Harish. Um, as they uh, set course to Harish, um, so now the story jumps forward, and we're back to the present. And uh, Calhoun and everybody have have left the the ravaged planet of Harish, and uh, Shelby is uh, making some uh, captain's logs or uh, commander logs because she's the first officer, and she's basically talking about how uh, Calhoun. She suspects him of something because he's calling all the senior staff in one at a time and asking them strange questions. Um, so then uh, Calhoun, uh, this then she goes to sleep. She falls asleep. So then Calhoun walks aboard the bridge uh, to find uh, the night shift, which is commanded by uh, Kate Mueller, M-U-E-L-L-E-R. And uh, basically he uh, gives a new course and a new speed. Um, and then she and he have a little banter which we'll talk about later and basically uh right as they uh, start going to this new course uh shelby wakes up and realizes that he's going to jump time he's going to slingshot uh, around the, the sun that's that's why he was calling all these people in and asking these really odd questions so she jumps onto the uh, bridge just as they finish their slingshot maneuver and they're now four days and 11 hours in the past 
So then uh, Captain Calhoun and Excalibur head back to Harish to uh, stop them from angering the Redeemers and causing the whole dev- devastation to the planet. So as they show up, a uh, time ship, uh, the USS Relativity, shows up. Um, and uh, this is when Calhoun's on the planet. So he confronts Shelby and basically says that uh, she needs to get her captain in line and get him back on the ship and for them not to interfere with uh, the uh, Redeemers uh, destroying this planet. So back on Harish, a gentleman by C. Kwan, I think is how you pronounce his name. Uh, he is a um, diplomat from a uh, from from the novels, which through course of events he's kind of stayed with the the uh, the spaceship. So, anyways, so Saquon is uh, fighting to the death uh, with this character named Ferment, and the reason why he's fighting is because Calhoun uh, basically insulted him for not uh, not listening to him about the the Redeemer threat, and. Uh, he chose Saquon to be his uh, his opponent as opposed to uh, allowing Calhoun to fight his own fight. Cal- yeah. uh, <clears throat> go ahead. Yeah, and one of the reasons is because he's a Tholian, and Tholian used to control that that part of space. Yeah, so Tholian was the uh, the he was like a pre or he was like a <clears throat> prince or I don't think he was quite king, but he was way up there uh, as far as the uh, the royalty hierarchy of this planet that was just basically taking over the, this little section of the galaxy. Uh, including Harish, obviously. We can talk about it later, but uh, that that planet is no more at this point. All right, so back on Excalibur, Shelby is discussing the situation uh, with uh, Mueller while uh, Mueller is fencing. And uh, basically they have a little talk, and uh, Shelby leaves uh, leaves her knowing that she has to do what she thinks is right. So back on uh, on the... uh, the, uh, This is the uh, Redeemer... Uh, Braxton is uh, basically talking about how the uh, surface-to-air defenses of Harish wouldn't be powerful enough to uh, push back the Redeemer, and they're worried that uh, the Excalibur will be the uh, the driving factor in, in deciding which way this goes. Uh, Braxton contacts Calhoun, uh, tells him to stand down. Uh, basically, he's uh, he says that he won't, and then and then Braxton says, "Well, what do you think, Shelby? Are you going to?" Uh, you know, take over command. And then we get a nice little flashback that uh, is kind of a flashback of, basically it's a flashback of Calhoun and and how their relationship, uh, how they were lovers during Starfleet Academy and things like that. And basically uh, he says something to the effect of, uh, don't worry about tomorrow, let let the future sort itself out. So then when you flash back to the, the present, that's what she says. And Calhoun makes comment that he wishes he thought of something like that. <laughs> so uh, Braxton then orders uh, all weapons to be fired against the Excalibur, but at quarter strength they start shooting. Um, Calhoun basically uh, calls Braxton and says that if uh, if he doesn't stand down, he's just going to destroy the ship. And he knows that if he destroys his own ship, then that's going to affect the timeline even uh, maybe even more. Uh, because Braxton must know that he doesn't die here in, in, in this way. So Braxton stands down just as the uh, Redeemer ship shows up. Uh, the Redeemer ship is de- attacked by the uh, uh, Her- Heresh. I'm, I'm pronouncing it differently every time, and I apologize for that. <laughs> so uh, they're actually, 
yeah, so they're attacked by the Haresh defenses, and then the, when the Excalibur starts to uh, join in, Braxton moves the ship uh, into uh, firing range and basically, you know, basically calls uh, uh, Calhoun's bluff here. And then just then, this bigger ship just appears out of nowhere, and we get this uh, face of an Envy, which was the the race that we saw earlier that he saved from the uh, the uh, magnetic storm. And this this guy just basically says that he's from 1,500 years in the future, and his weaponry is so, far superior to what uh, either the, the Harish or the uh, uh, USS Relativity has, and that uh, everybody needs to stay uh, basically cease fire and leave Captain Calhoun and the uh, the Harish uh, planet alone, which both the Redeemers and uh, Braxton uh, leave. So once they're gone, the uh, Envy uh, or NF uh, representative comes to the Excalibur. Uh, he talks to Calhoun a little bit about the future and basically says that uh, the Harish, uh, who were once extinct uh, but are now saved due to Calhoun's actions, uh, are really good uh, slaves in the future, and uh, you know they they basically the, these guys these envies are even worse than what the redeemers were. So these envies in the future, one thousand five hundred years in the future, basically take over everything and are uh, very uh, analogous to uh, the Nazis. Then we get a shot where the Excalibur uh, is back in its own time. Uh, they actually overshot their uh, arrival by sixteen months, so they're a year and a half further in their future. Um, and he says that he's had it with time travel, and uh, it's too risky. And, you know, obviously he's made things worse uh, from a certain point of view. And uh, then when they uh, contact Starfleet, and uh, basically uh, they make a comment about how uh, how they're going to justify their year-and-a-half absences that they've been working a lot of overtime. And that's how it ends. <laughs> I, I like that. I like how they have the little joke there at the end, uh, very similar to how the, uh, you know, all the old Star Treks ended in a joke. Exactly, or tried to, sometimes successfully, sometimes not. Yeah. So I did like how this one is called uh, Double Time, and and here at the end they do talk about how time travel is a double-edged sword. So, mm. uh, you know, one way you think you're saving somebody, but another way you're you're hurting somebody else. So. Uh, I, I did like the ending of this. I thought it was pretty good. Um, it was definitely a surprise. I wasn't expecting the Envy to show up and be so much worse than what the Redeemers were because the Redeemer kills everybody quick where the Envy in the future basically enslave everyone uh, for, in for the far, generations in the and generations. Right. Yeah, but, yeah, still. Still it's bad. Yeah, it's bad. <laughs> yeah, so I think, it was a, I think it was a good story too. Um I certainly didn't expect them to go back in time, and I thought, and after they went back in time, it was like I didn't really get the idea that they could be in two places at once until they came out and said it. So I was like, oh, that's what they're going to do, and that's how they're going to save the Haresh. Um, yeah, and but then, of you... course, the, the, the twist at the end, where they end up uh, ma- uh, making it possible for them to be enslaved farther in the future. Right. Because obviously the Federation won't be there 1,500 years in the future to stop that kind of shenanigans in the future. <laughs> exactly, shenanigans. And really, it, it kind of makes you wonder. It's like, 
Uh, you go far enough into the future, it's like, well, who knows what's going to, I mean, whether anything will look anything like it does these days. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I thought 1,500 years was far enough in the future to, <clears throat> you know, make it plausible that, you know, the Federation may be gone by then and replaced with something new. Like maybe this, maybe, I mean, they didn't say it, but maybe this Envy uh, Nazi type government takes over all of the Federation. So, yeah. I don't know. <clears throat> I thought it was interesting. It, it was interesting. Although, if you take, of course, the one of the things that's interesting about uh, reading the notes at the back of, I think it was the back of this book, it was talking about how they wanted they created this series because they wanted to have a timeline and a set of characters that really owed nothing to the continuity uh week to week of the uh, TV shows and the movies and that kind of stuff. Yeah, exactly. That was uh that was at the end of this book and it was by uh John uh Ordover. Mm-hmm. So John Ordover was <clears throat> he and Peter David were the two two uh driving forces that created this whole New Frontier series. No, I agree. I I really like how this is taken out of continuity and they actually say it right here that they don't have to worry about Bashir becoming an enhanced uh, being <laughs> exactly yeah no, that's good and, and and these are good books uh, Peter David uh, who we've mentioned before I think he's really good because he ties in a whole bunch of little pieces of continuity from previous uh, works both his own and the TV shows mm-hmm. and kind of ties them all into a new story that it seems plausible and yet completely outside of the Kirk Picard type timelines. Exactly. And they do have good characters, plenty of them. Good humor, reasonably interesting complex stories, and it's interesting seeing an alien as the captain. Although I must say that that particular alien race looks just like humans. Well, a lot of alien races look just like humans, like the Beta Zeds and the... Yeah, I know, I know. It's just... But- now, and I might be misremembering this because uh, I think I really only read maybe the first four books or so. Uh, I have more of them, but uh, I haven't actually got around to reading them or reading them that much. Uh, but I thought Calhoun's eyes were like a purplish color, but here they're they're brown. Yeah. So I don't know if I'm just misremembering or <laughs> if it's just uh, colored differently. I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't recall um, because I, I had read uh, a couple novels in the past, and of course, you know, there's no illustrations or anything. I don't know what they had described, but but I, I thought I thought he was supposed to be a little bit more alien, but right. And that scar that's on his cheek uh, yes. in the in the books it seems much larger. Like I mean, in the in the book in the flashback where it's talking about how he actually got it. I mean, they talk about how he's worried that his eye has fallen out. And exactly. so you really get the the feeling that this goes over his his brow and down the the the, the whole side of his cheek, and yet this is just like a little scratch over here to the side. Sure. And they also make the comment that you know with modern technology, Federation technology, whatever, uh, something like that could be taken care of pretty easily. But he says he doesn't want it taken care of. He wants it to remind him to be careful, to watch his back, mm-hmm. and uh, actually. Uh, Maka Enzi, which is how you're supposed to pronounce his alien name. At least I think that's that's 100% right. I think you're right. Uh, it, actually, it, it's a very... I think it's pretty interesting how he was this uh, out-of-control warrior, warlord guy who frees his uh, his, his, uh, his planet from, uh, from oppressive forces. 
and how he becomes a starship captain eventually rather than right. becoming king of his planet or whatever right because he was like a freedom fighter that was basically fighting off these uh these alien invaders that were enslaving his planet when he was young mm-hmm. so i think he was like 18 years old or whatever when when he uh basically won basically uh, i think what it was it uh and i think it actually has a little shot in here where picard shows up uh, i don't remember what page it is but it, in the little flashback shot when uh right. shelby's giving her a uh, little uh captain's log uh, it has a shot of captain picard there talking to a, a long-haired uh, uh mckenzie and uh so that's supposed to be when picard is captain of the stargazer if i remember correctly oh really so in the Stargazer timeline, did they have those uniforms? Or I thought no. they were still wearing the, uh, well, the the lighter version of the Wrath of Khan uniforms. You know, uh, I saw that in your notes, and I think you're probably you're probably right, but it's kind of difficult to tell. I didn't realize it was that much further back in time, uh, but I guess it would have been. Right, because in the timeline of the novels. Um, McKenzie doesn't become captain of the Excalibur until after first contact. So you would think that he has to go all through school and, uh, you know, they did say he served aboard other ships sure, and got kicked out and he was doing all this special op stuff for uh, Jelko or Jericho, however you pronounce his name. I think it's Jellico. Jellico. Yeah, Jellico. Uh So, I mean, you would think that more than seven years would have had to have passed. Sure. So from first contact to encounter at Farpoint, that's only supposed to be seven years, so sure. it'd have to and, be. And unless you're uh, Kirk in the new movie, nobody gets a ship that fast. That's true. That is true. Well, I mean, we're kind of jumping all over the place, but we are. Uh, Commander Shelby. Uh, having Shelby here, uh, as everyone knows, she is uh, basically, she wanted to be kept, uh, she wanted to be Riker's uh, replacement. Mm-hmm during the best of both worlds uh, season finale of the next generation. So she didn't get that gig, obviously. Um, and then she becomes commander here. And then here in a minute, when we start talking about the IDW comics, uh, turnaround uh, was the name of that series. She's Admiral. So yes. she goes from commander here to Admiral uh, in just this span of a few novels. Where at this time when she's admiral, Picard's not even admiral. <laughs> yeah, she Jane... ascended. She ascended pretty quickly, and she's passed up uh, Calhoun. Now I can only assume that's because of Calhoun's um, recklessness, uh, untamed ways. I don't know, but obviously all of this is explained in the intervening comic books, novels, because obviously a lot of stuff happened uh, between this book and the uh, turnaround comics. Right, uh, a lot have, and I know a little bit about what's going on, but I have, I have somehow missed out on wh- why Shelby is admiral and how she became admiral so quick. Yeah. So I'm going to have to find out which novels those are in and, and give them a look. And a lot of yeah. Another difference between this book and the next one is the uh, the Excalibur, the ship itself. Right. Yeah, the Excalibur is actually, or this Excalibur uh, is actually destroyed and. And there was a trilogy of novels called Excalibur Requiem, mm-hmm. Excalibur Renaissance. Uh, Renaissance, and Excalibur Restoration. Yes. Uh, and those three, which I haven't read, I think you've read some of them, or at least I, I think no. you have. I think you no. said you did. Okay, maybe I was mistaken. 
the uh, the Excalibur. This Excalibur somehow destroyed. I don't know how because I didn't read them. And then they're giving it. They're given a, a Galaxy class ship, which we'll see in the next series. Yeah. So uh, we can just keep going through all the crew members, uh, but uh, I want to save some for the IDW series because uh, they have a bigger part of that story than they do in this one. Sure. Uh, but but just talking about the Excalibur uh, being an ambassador class ship, I love this ship. <laughs> I think the Excalibur ship is awesome. I think that the Enterprise C from uh, what is that? Yesteryear? No, yesterday's Enterprise. Yesterday's from, Enterprise. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yesterday's Enterprise. When you see the Excalibur, I think that ship looks awesome. I think it's really underrated. Uh, I would love to get like a big model of the uh, Enterprise C. Uh, but uh, they just they don't make them because nobody else likes it but me, I guess. But <laughs> but I love this comic book because I mean you get some pretty cool shots of the Excalibur um, yeah. flying around. Yep. And I gotta say, just to give my quick opinion, I think the Ambassador class is one of my least favorite looks wise. <laughs> I mean, it's cool. I mean, it's cool and everything. But I mean, if you know, if I have to rank them, um, I, I'm I'm not. I'm not styling on the Ambassador as much as the uh, Galaxy class, and certainly, uh, was it Sovereign class that's E, uh, Enterprise? Yeah, yeah, E is Sovereign, right? I'm digging that Sovereign. I like that one, but... um, I like, I used to really like that one, but it, I don't know, it's too flat for me. I I like the more... It's hard to hit that way. It's hard to hit it. (laughs) I mean, it's really flat, the... the, Yes, it is. The saucer section is just right on top of the engineering, and then the nacelles are just straight off, almost at a ninety degree angle to the the the, uh, the engineering section. Structurally, much sounder design, like yeah. Voyager, an extension of Voyager. It it does look it looks like a a much cooler version of Voyager. Voyager is probably one of my least favorite ships, though. Hmm. But uh, this one is one of my favorites, so that's funny to hear. I mean, I I know that my opinion. Uh, Sometimes differs from a lot of people because my <laughs> wife absolutely hates the the Excalibur or this uh, Ambassador class ship. Hmm. She, she thinks that all all ships are should look like the Galaxy class uh, Enterprise. That oh. that's that to her is that's the, her ideal. Yes, which from an engineering standpoint is one of the most awkward designs. That big yeah. huge saucer section. Um. Right up there on front, in front. It's just awkward. And the little tiny nacelles. I, I would say out of all the Enterprises, just going off of Enterprises, I would say the the Enterprise D is maybe my second to least favorite. I, I'm not a big fan of the Excalibur class ship. I mean, uh, uh, Excelsior class ship, uh-huh. which is the Enterprise B. Uh, right. I think that's probably my least favorite. And then I think the D would be right above that. Right. Which I know a lot of people disagree with me on that one. But anyways, but what I was going to talk about with the Ambassador class. So the Ambassador class is obviously an old type of ship. Mm-hmm. So I did like how Excalibur is an old ship, uh, you know, which I think is what Gene Roddenberry's original idea of Star Trek was. Because I think when Captain Kirk was in charge of the Enterprise, it was supposed to be a really old ship at that point. Even though it was the the flagship of the Federation, it was still – it had already had a five-year mission, at least a five-year mission with uh, Commander uh, Captain Pike. It, it had had a mission, uh, uh, a tenure of Captain April before that. So, I mean, it was supposed to be an older ship, you know, a seasoned ship. Mm-hmm. 
where ever since the movie started, it was always the ship of the line, the newest and best ship. And then as soon as it got a little old, they would destroy it and build a new one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, like Enterprise A only lasts for, what, three or uh, three movies? And then yep. they're, by the end of the sixth movie, they're already talking about mothballing it and building the Enterprise B. So, Oh, right. Well, they didn't get the okay, Enterprise so- A until Star Trek. Five, and then by Star Trek Six, they're already talking about mothballing it because when they at that last scene in Star Trek Six, they talk about how they're going home to Starfleet to mothball the ship. Right. So that's just two movies, and then they're already getting rid of it to to get uh, the 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 newest and greatest uh, class of ship. I don't know. (laughs) I just kind of you're just an old-fashioned ship kind of guy. Exactly. Hey, nothing wrong with that. All right. Um, Moving on, can we talk about some of the uh, female crew members? Sure. Which one? Did you want to talk about Burgoyne? Mueller. Huh? <laughs> Burgoyne, the uh, the Hermite, Hermat. You know, Burgoyne. Okay. Uh, he's supposed to be he. She is supposed to be uh, half half woman, half man. Uh, in this in this series, I think she he looks more feminine than what we'll see in the IDW. The way. The way he she is uh, depicted. I did not know that, and I oh, would yeah. have to see. I would have to see that character. I did uh, not know that it was a he she. Yeah, Burgoyne is the uh, science officer. I think uh, no, not science officer because that's the Vulcan. Uh, let me find what page. Who turns out to be not a hundred percent Vulcan. You don't know that in this this book, though. Okay, that's a secret. We'll find All out right. in the next one, though. Yeah, we will. All right, so w- which female character would you like to talk about? Mueller. All right. Now, she's obviously uh, got an attitude issue, but damn, she is like the uh, she's like the seven of this series. Yeah, unfortunately, these pages aren't numbered, so I'm assuming you're talking about when she's fencing. Uh, she's looking good fencing, and she's also looking real good earlier also. That, that part where uh, she's talking with uh, Calhoun and coming onto the uh, bridge unexpectedly to do his little maneuver, his oh, uh, yeah. time maneuver. Yep, yep. She looks very seven-like there. Right. <laughs> so at some point he and she have a relationship because by the time we get into the next comic book series, she's captain of a starship Trident. And uh, another she, <clears throat> another galaxy class ship. Yeah, and she has a definite grudge at that point against Shelby, who, yep. who ends up marrying Shelby him. is married to Calhoun. So. Right. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, love going on this ship. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, uh, what else did you have to say about her? Uh nothing. Just that she's pretty hot. Although obviously she's uh, she's got uh, some personality issues. Yeah, she has a chip on her shoulder. Yeah. Um, okay, so who's the big guy? The big guy? That is... Uh, oh, I'm going to mispronounce his name. Uh, that is... Hold on. I wrote his name down so that I would uh, be able to say it. But, uh, now I can't find it. Oh, Kebron. Uh, Kebron, right? Yeah, so in the books, or at least the books that I've read, Kebron uh, is basically the thing from the Fantastic Four. He's, <laughs> he's made out of rock. He's gigantic and he you know he's wearing like a gravity belt so that because he weighs so much mm-hmm. that he has to have this gravity belt to walk 
but from what I understand, uh, at some point he uh, matures, and basically all this rocky exterior uh, falls off of him, mm-hmm. and he has this flesh tone uh, on him now. Right. Uh, I didn't read this book when it came out, so when we talked about reading this, I thought that this book would be based when he was still rocky. Mm-hmm. So I was really looking forward to seeing the thing. You know, <laughs> the thing is a comic book guy. When he's described in the comic book or the novels, he sounds just like the thing. So I'm picturing this big orange thing with Starfleet uniform on, and then I crack it open and I see, oh no, this is already after he's matured into the the uh, fleshy version of himself. The fleshy thing, right. and uh, and like Ben Grimm, he's pretty funny. He is pretty funny. I think his best lines are in the in the IDW series. I but, completely uh, agree. But he's got some good ones here, too. He does have some good ones here. He's very uh, sarcastic. Very sarcastic. Which I think I think he works a lot like the uh, Dr. McCoy. Uh-huh. And his foil in the, in the book series was always Cy, uh, Cy Quan, the, oh, uh, the, right. the, the, the ambassador guy. there. Right. Yeah, because so they were always like, you know, it was always this love-hate relationship. Which you get a little bit of that here when, when Cy Quan's fighting and he's like... You know, rooting for the other guy, and then when Captain calls him on him, he's like, "Oh yeah, okay, go Cyclone." Yeah, yeah sarcastic, <laughs> exactly. So, no, I really like him. I, again, these aren't page numbered, but uh, I guess it would be probably around page twenty or so. Mm-hmm. You get uh, Robin Leffler talking to her mother mm-hmm. while her mother's getting out of the shower or whatever. Yep, and uh, which is which is really weird because of what mom is. Well, or will be. But, but even in okay, so you know what she's going to be in the future. But even here, I hope I'm not mixing this up from the other one. But, um, but she's not she's not human here either. Uh, she's she? not quite she's not quite human. She she's a an immortal. She was born an immortal. So, uh, oh. in the in the novels, she's always played up as, you know, they they don't really tell you who she is, but they kind of hint that, you know, there's a there's a there's a book <clears> where. Uh, Captain or Montgomery Scott meets her, hmm. and uh, when he walks up to her, he's like, "Christine, you're here." And then he realizes that, oh, it's this other person named Morgan, huh. uh, making a reference to Christine Chapel, who was yeah. played by uh, um, Margell Barrett. Sure. And there's also reference that uh, this Morgan character sounds a lot like the computer for some reason, or they're <laughs> always making references that she is uh, another character played by. Margell Barrett. Hmm. And in fact, I think we'll get this into the next book, but uh, because you actually get to see her face here, she's always obscured. But she's maybe, she might actually be number one from uh, Pike's uh, Enterprise. Oh, really? They're trying to say that? I think, they, I think they are trying to say that, that yeah. she's an immortal who's lived all these years. Uh, she was, you know, the same age back when Pike was captain. And she may or may not have actually been number one in that in that uh, that yeah. episode. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I did I did wonder why they uh, purposely hid her face, whether with a mirror or with a towel or shooting her from the back. Uh, she's only in a few panels, but they definitely will not show her face. And in the uh, next book, when you do see her, uh, she does look like uh, Majel Barrett. Yep, she looks just like her. So I think yeah. by that time they've already they've kind of hinted around enough about who she may or may not be 
that they can go ahead and show what she actually looks like. But at this point in the novels, they hadn't revealed that yet. So I thought it was a nice little coy way of having her in the book, but not showing her face to give away anything they were planning on doing in the future. Exactly. But her daughter, uh, Robin, I think is her name, she'll play an important part uh, in the in the next series. Uh, she won't be on Excalibur anymore, but uh, she's a pretty key player, I think, in that in that story. Yeah, and it's interesting in the next one how so many of the characters, uh, the ship's crew, are um, are not on the ship anymore, not in Starfleet, and off doing other things. Right. That just so happened to work into the storyline. Hmm. It's almost like that. they had like they had a good writer or something. Exactly. Exactly. So on that note, should we move on? Oh, well, one thing about the when the uh, time ship shows up, mm-hmm. isn't. <clears throat> Captain Braxton, also the name of the captain that that's in a time ship in the Voyager episode Future's End. Uh, remember in that episode, Voyager gets sucked back into like 1980 or something like that, and they get sent back in time because they're confronted by this time ship that's trying to stop them from changing the future. Do you remember that episode? I remember it a little bit, but I remember the the, the name of the captain of the time yes. ship. Yes. Yeah, I think I think. I think that is. I think it's supposed to be him. So it's again. That's just a nice little continuity, continuity uh, connection mm-hmm. that I like. Ooh, continuity uh, connection. Yeah, which you you don't really get a lot in the Star Trek comic books or uh, that we've read so far because they were all like little standoffs, standalones. Right. Right. They didn't know what the writer was going to do in the uh, in the TV series or the next movie. Right. So uh, it is nice that this is really heavily continuity heavy. Which is interesting. They didn't have to be, but it was, they did it because they chose to do it rather than they were forced to. And I think it makes a better uh, a better story. There you go. So the last thing I have about this is when Calhoun calls uh, Braxton out and says that, you know, I'll just destroy the ship if you don't give me what I want because I know that if I kill myself, I'll be, you know, affecting the future somehow because I'm not supposed to die right here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, it's the whole, he's so crazy, he might actually do it, and we'll just give in to him. Uh, if I'm remembering correctly, I think that happens a lot in Calhoun's stories. Yes, it, it does. Yeah, okay. Uh, uh, in one of the novels, he comes into uh, contact with uh, an opponent where the guy's in his face, and, of course, Calhoun's on the ship. And you think Calhoun's going to go ahead and call his bluff and maybe kill everybody, but he doesn't. He backs down. So it was, that was interesting. That's the first time I had seen Calhoun do that because usually he's the kind of guy like the cop, and then the cop's partner is held by the by the bad guy, and right. then the cop takes the shot and shoots the bad guy in the head and saves the partner. That's the kind of guy you expect um, Calhoun to always be, but this particular story was interesting in that he he, he was – maturing and he didn't do it so mm. kind of interesting i'll have to look that one up read that one yes well you yes yes i could i could lend you that one all right sounds good that one. sounds good all right so that's it for i have for that one you want to jump us straight into uh the next yes let's let's do shall we so this next one is uh star trek new friends here again and the title of this one is turnaround and there are five different issues that tell the story. Uh, it's from IDW. The IDWs tend to be um, a little shorter, but extremely high quality. 
high quality comics, but they tend to give you uh, smaller portions per issue. Great. All right. And these these started coming out. Uh, the two that we're going to do. This one came out March of two thousand and eight, and the next one came out uh, what, April two thousand and eight. So we're, we're eight years after the last issue. Wow. Okay. So um, written again by Peter David, art by Stephen Thompson, colors by Leonard O'Grady, uh, lettered by Neil Uitake. Uitake, yeah. Wow. Um, interesting name. And then uh, edited by Andrew Stephen Harris. So uh, the story opens up uh, during a launch ceremony for a new class of ship, the Paradox, showing off its new shunt drive, which will bend time to move the ship instead of bending space like, tr- like traditional warp tech. Admiral Jellico, Commander Meiras, Ma- uh, Admiral Tapax, are the only ones in attendance as uh, Dr. Wyant performs the test. The test not, does not go as, expect, as expected. Instead of warping space to move faster than light, the ship just blink, blinks up in time by almost 20 minutes. So they're moved forward in time by 20 minutes. As the doctor is trying to figure out what happened, Jellico shoots her and, and the Vulcan. Uh, he fights hand-to-hand with Emiras and stabs him in the chest. He says something like, we need the ship more than you do. Who is we? Cut to the shot of, the, of, of a galaxy-class uh, ship around space station Bravo. A huge face appears, and the, sh- and the ship and station are destroyed. Captain Mackenzie Calhoun awakes in bed from a nightmare-slash-vision that he got from the godlike McHenry that used to be a crewman on the Excalibur before he got his powers. Calhoun's wife, Admiral Shelby, gets a calm uh, that Calhoun is needed in the ship and tells her that Jellico stole the Paradox. Calhoun, Calhoun beams aboard. Flash to New th- uh, Thalon. Lady Swan, a.k.a. Robin Lafleur, is telling the people of the planet that it is, her, that it is their fault the Sequan has died and that she has the power to call down Federation if she wanted to. They believe her and disperse. Lady Quan is then confronted by her sister-in-law, Kalinda, who says she can still talk to the dead ghost of, uh, of Si Quan. She then reveals that she knows that Robin is pregnant. Da-da-da! <laughs> Big reveal. Flash to the Excalibur, now a galaxy-class ship, Calhoun and crew go over what happened and discuss possibilities and rule them all out, including a shapeshifter who only looks like Jellico. Calhoun speaks the Vul- to the Vulcan Admiral Tapax, and they discuss that the Daystrom Institute has the power to chart the Paradox's course and could even disable the ship, but they want to follow Jellico to see what he will do. He is ordered to stay within range of the Paradox, but, but just to monitor it. Just then, Shelby is on the view screen, explaining how she is being attacked by the Paradox, and then she is shown exploding. A crewman appears on the bridge, Morgan, who may or may not be number one from Pike's ship, and who is Robin's mother. A little editorial thing slipped in there. She is a holographic representation of the ship. She explains that the transmission was real, despite... Calhoun's denial. 
Then the face of McHenry appears and says it was a good trick and now one, now on to his next one and then disappears laughing. Calhoun orders an alert to be placed on the Trident to head to Bravo Station to protect it. Calhoun then says their new plan is to damage the Paradox before it can damage the station. To be continued. Exactly. And there's lots of, lots of continuation going on here. Okay, so, um, this sets up the story quite nicely. There are lots of questions going on. What the heck's going on with Jellicoe? Especially when he has that cool knife coming out of his sleeve that he just stabs the, uh, uh, the, the, the other officer with. Uh, it was pretty cool. There's lots of action going on in this one, which I like. And uh, very good artwork. Yep, I agree. I, I, and I was really surprised that that first shot where Jellicoe just shoots uh, the doctor just square in the chest. Yep. I mean, I was literally like, what? What's going on here? Now, of course, it turns out that he was stunning them. I think he stunned them all. Uh, uh, he but... must have, because Tafox is shown later on. And exactly. It must and I think... be just a stun. And I think they actually said they uh, they, they were beamed uh, onto uh, a support ship that was uh, monitoring the uh, Paradox's flight. But I'll tell you, when that when that big old long knife went in the throat of uh, of that commander, that looked that looked kind of nasty. It re- it reminded me of that um, the Marathon Man, you know. Mar- Marathon Man. Yeah, the uh, there's an old movie Marathon Man with Dustin Hoffman and. Uh, uh, Roy Scheider and great actor. His name escapes me at the moment. Anyway, uh, an ex-Nazi ends up killing super spy Roy Scheider because he's got this big old long knife under his sleeve, and he gets in close to Roy Scheider and just <clears throat> just mm. kills him right, uh, stabs him right up through the sternum. Pretty cool. Anyway, so this reminded me of that kind of uh, up the sleeve kind of long nasty knife just popping up. Yeah, it reminded me a little bit of uh, in Batman the the 1989 movie when uh, that goon or whatever jumps on Batman and then he just holds out his hand and that little uh, metal thing extends from his hand and like basically stops his momentum. I don't know if you remember oh, that in the, in the oh, bell yeah, tower yeah. scene. Yeah. But did you recognize? Uh, Where does he get all those toys? Exactly. Uh, Mirez. He's the uh, that cat species that we were talking about uh last week remember how uh mm-hmm. that crewman uh now her name escapes me she's in the later issue so yep so that's the male of the species huh? Merez, Merez. right yeah she, this is the a male version of that species oh cool i didn't know that yeah so uh what'd you think of the galaxy class ship being the uh the excalibur well um I think it's fine. I mean, uh, in this in this comic book, they seem to have a lot of them to pass around. Yeah, there's uh, quite a, there's quite a few in this in these the Trident and the Excalibur itself. Yeah, exactly. So it's like it's like, hey, there's another person in the timeline that ends up getting a ship. Hey, take a Galaxy class. Not the Galaxy classes were kind of special ships. They, they well, seem to give them out a lot in this uh, in this well, particular I- issue. At this point, we already have the Sovereign class, so the Galaxy class is now the uh, the old model, so they can just pass them out while all the really good <laughs> captains are getting Sovereign class ships. Yeah, good point, good point. 
But uh, you don't how, really how quickly the old models or the cool models become old models. Well, what we kind of talked about in the last uh, issue is that it seems that the Excalibur always gets the the one model less than the Enterprise. So when the Enterprise was Galaxy class, they're just Ambassador class. When they when the <laughs> Enterprise is Sovereign class, oh now we can be a Galaxy class. They always get the uh, Picard's uh, hand me downs. Ah, oh, well you can't beat Picard. Come on. So the uh, ship registration, you don't see it here, but in the in the next issue we get a really good shot of the Excalibur's registration number. Do you remember that, or do you want to talk about it next next issue? Uh, let's let, okay. So you say the uh, shot is in the next issue because quite frankly you brought this up and I did not notice it at all. Yeah, and uh, I don't remember well, what page it is. Let's bring it up in the next one. Yeah, okay. Well, you'll actually see the see the the shot. But anyways, but but what about this one, the 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 paradox? It has a uh, registration number of DRI hyphen zero one. That's so interesting. I, I always thought that uh, the NX. Exper- NX. Yeah, yeah, experimental ships were always NX because uh, Excal- Excelsior was NX two thousand, and obviously the original Enterprise was NX zero one. Yep. So what so, does DRI stand for? I mean, they say that it's made mm-hmm. by the. Daystrom? Daystrom. I think it's Daystrom. It's, it's Daystrom. DR? Yeah, no, 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 no. I'm D-A-Y. mispronouncing it because okay. I can't speak English. Daystrom. <laughs> right. Which, is is the Daystrom Institute supposed to be named after that Dr. De- uh, Daystrom who was in that uh, original series, uh, what is it, Ultimate Computer? <clears throat> yep. I think you're right. So that was the ship they put in to automate the Enterprise, and it didn't quite work out right. Right, yeah. Isn't wasn't that uh, the guy that that created the the computer? Wasn't his name Daystrom? I think so. I think so. And they actually Wait. have references uh, to uh, fully automated ships in the past, and those problems uh, have been rectified. Oh, that's right. They do. That's funny. I didn't even catch that. Yeah, that doctor who ends up getting shot. Oh, you're so right. I totally missed that. That is funny. In regards to that episode, uh, that's the only episode of the original series that had the first uh, Excalibur. So the Excalibur ship was in that in that episode as one of the ships playing the war games. Oh, hmm. Okay. Yeah, that, that's how cool. I knew what. That's how I knew the registration number was uh, NCC sixteen sixty four. Because the Excalibur is the one that actually gets destroyed, uh, that the that the computer actually kills and kills all the crewmen on there. Uh-huh. That was the Excalibur, uh-huh. which that Excalibur has a different registration than this Excalibur. But we can talk about that next issue. Sounds good. All right. My only note was how Shelby became admiral, but we already kind of talked about that. Right. And then when Calhoun beams away from her when they're when he's getting ready and, and gets out of the bed and uh, he's beaming back to the Excalibur, she's kissing him as he's mm-hmm. being teleported. Right. Uh, so I guess teleportation technology has advanced since Star Trek Four, when when uh, when Kirk was being bombed, beamed to the Klingon ship. The uh, I forgot her name, but Doctor. She, she jumps on him and and he and she accidentally gets beamed up as well. Mm-hmm. So I guess here you can be touching somebody and holding somebody and still not be beamed up. Now, Dr. whatever her name was, the citation, uh, 
Doctor, uh, threw her arms around Kirk, where this one, they're just touching lips. I thought she was holding him. Oh, no, she's holding... She's holding the blankets. Yeah, she's holding the blanket up so she won't be naked. (laughs) Which obviously wasn't a problem earlier in the evening, I'm sure. Well, they're married, it's okay. Exactly, exactly. So, uh... So Robin is now Lady Quan. So, so they must from, have uh, they must have gotten together at some point in the past, eh? Right. So she's now married to, or she was married to Sai Quan, and now he's dead, and his sister can still talk to him. I, yes. Actually, uh, could couldn't she talk to him too, Robin? No, no, because no, she doesn't even believe that uh, she, she doesn't believe the sister-in-law can actually talk to him. She thinks she's going crazy. Oh. Uh-huh. As do other people in the court, you find out later. Right. It's not until, until uh, what was her name, Kal- uh, Kalinda. It's not until Kalinda actually says that Saquon knows that she's pregnant, that she's like, oh, maybe maybe she does know something. <laughs> and then uh, when Morgan shows up, obviously uh, she looks just like uh, number one. Yes. Even down to the uniform, she's she's almost wearing the exact uh, like gold tunic that Number One wore in uh, the Cage episode. You know that that's an interesting point. It, it does kind of look like that, doesn't it? And definitely the hair is exactly Number One. Right. I did have to do a little bit of research on her because when I was reading this, not not being as familiar with the New Frontier as I probably should be, I had no idea why Number One was on the the ship. And so I had to actually look her up. She has a very interesting little past. If you don't mind, I'll, I'll share it with you. Uh, she Please was born. Do. She was born a human, but for whatever reason, she was um, immortal. She couldn't die. When she was, tw- she's several centuries old, and then uh, at some point she dies. And I didn't write down how she dies, but it basically says that she died, and because she's immortal. Her, her, basically, her soul couldn't die, so now it lives in the the ship. Oh, was that how that happened? Yeah. Hmm. Which, which is ironic because this McHenry guy. Yeah. Um, if you remember, he's in that previous uh, issue that we read. Yeah, he's like. He, yeah, he's like the dopey young ensign, whatever, or maybe he was a lieutenant. I don't know, but he was a dopey, smiling-looking Jimmy Olsen kind of guy. At least that's how he was drawn <laughs> in the previous issue. Right, and and he has an interesting past too. His Great grandmother was supposedly that woman in uh, the original series episode uh, who mourns for Adonis. Yeah, oh. hmm. remember how uh, Apollo falls in love with one of the crewmen? Right. Oh, that's right. Gets they her mentioned all, that. Gets her all dolled up. Yeah, supposedly that's his great grandmother, and she and Apollo actually consummate that relationship. I guess off screen because I don't remember that. And uh, so he's like the great-grandson of a Greek god, and uh, I guess he somehow dies, but because uh, Apollo looks favorably on him, uh, basically gave him all this Q-like powers uh, in the afterlife. So he's still around, but he's disembodied and all-powerful. And apparently quite insane. Uh, He is a little crazy, it seems. Or so it seems. Now you'd think, hey, I become God. You know, hey, you know, why go crazy? But I guess he did. <laughs> hey, you don't know how you'll act until you get that power. I guess so. Because as Riker said, absolute power corrupts absolutely. 
He is so original in that. <laughs> uh, like you said, these are pretty short. I really don't have any other. No. And we have one more to do. Okay, so going on to the second issue of Turnaround, uh, the action begins. The USS Trident arrives at Bravo Station with Captain Cat Mueller. Cat and Shelby have some words because Cat used to be a lover of Calhoun, and there seems to be a little tension still there. The Excalibur is heading to the last known location of the Paradox. Kibran, who is now counselor as well as security officer, interesting combination, has a long talk with Calhoun about how he should vent his concerns. Calhoun does not say anything except, does anyone miss the days when Zach Cabron did not speak? Which everyone agrees to. So this must have been a while back, because he was speaking plenty in the previous uh, issue. Uh, Calhoun speaks with Morgan. She talks about how she is interfacing with the Daystrom Institute still. He says she is the most powerful entity in the universe. She says, not yet. They get, to, they, they get to the coordinates of the paradox and learn it is heading to New Thalon. They want to contact Kalinda and Robin to warn them without sending a message. They end up sending Morgan there instead. Okay. Yeah, so so, so that, the next scene was a little little odd. And, and does she actually appear in a in a hologram or a holodeck, or is it a dream? I don't know, but I, does it end up in a um, in a hologram or a holodeck? Yeah. Okay. Sorry, didn't right. mean to interrupt you. That's fine. Okay, so Morgan creates a dreamscape that looks like the bridge at the Excalibur. Maybe it's a holodeck. We're not sure. When Robin falls asleep, she and Morgan have a long talk about the death of Sequan, and Morgan, okay, Morgan somehow somehow knows that Robin is pregnant. Mothers do know these things. Uh, aboard a cloaked Romulan ship, Soleta and Lucius are waiting on a message from Robin. While waiting, they decide to kill the time with some adult activities. Once topless, they pick up uh, Soleta. That is, uh, they pick up the presence of another ship and discover a huge oil refinery-looking ship with the Paradox docked with it. Soleta thinks the other ship is a techno-organic ship and is injecting something into the Paradox. Just then, they lose their cloak. The Paradox detaches and heads over. As it gets closer, it starts to multiply, and there are at least four Paradoxes surrounding the uh, Romulan ship. Admiral Jellicoe hails them, recognizes Soleta and says he will be so thrilled and beams her off the ship. To be continued. Hmm. Hmm. So there you go. So, what is the deal with Jellicoe? Who has the paradox? What are they doing to the paradox? And how the heck can the paradox be in four places at once? I many, don't know. Many questions coming up. I, I do. I do think that uh, that that this book uh, or the series of books does a good job of painting a nice little mystery for you, and uh, and keeping you interested. So I, I do like that about it. Right. So I actually read these out of order. So uh, I had the issues uh, with me when I started reading them. Uh, I didn't these two issues, and I didn't have the uh, Wildstorm comic with me. So I said, oh, I'll just start reading these two first. So after I got finished with this issue and it leaves on that cliffhanger, I was like, 
I don't want to. I, don't, I want to read part three. I don't want to have to go back and read the the Wildstorm one. Because yeah. <laughs> I mean, they really did suck me in. I was like, how did they uh, multiply themselves and things like that? Yeah. That well, good. definitely one thing I want to comment on from the first one is they they describe that the paradox has the this new uh, shunting drive or whatever that bends time as opposed to warp drive, which bends space. And I gotta say, I just got, I just got to put my little naysayer hat on and going. How can bending space get you anywhere? You mean bending time or bending time? Sorry. How, how can bending time get you anywhere? I mean, you bend time and you're still in the same place physically. So I just want to get that out there. No, I, I agree, and it's funny because, like I said, I read this one before I read the Wildstorm one, mm-hmm. and so. In the Wildstorm one, they talk about the the USS uh, Relativity being able to bend time mm. instead of bending space. Almost almost word for word, exactly what they're talking about, this, uh, this uh, shunt drive. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I'm assuming they did that on purpose, that maybe this, this shunt drive is the precursor to the, the USS Relativity in the future. But uh, I just thought it was just odd, almost word for word, it was explained the exact same way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I also find it interesting that that uh, that the time ship uh, looks totally unlike any kind of uh, Federation design. So obviously, it's from very far in the future. You mean the one in the first? The first in the story. first book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do like the way this one looks. It has like the uh, the kind of chopped off saucer section. Almost mean, looks kind of like a stingray. The, the paradox. The paradox. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's face, the the top of the saucer section looks a lot like a stingray with the big mandibles kind of in the middle. Right. Uh, and then it has these two huge nacelles. The nacelles are much larger than the uh, than the, the saucer section. Right. I think it's a really unique look. Mm-hmm. A whole I new like kind it. of ship. A whole new kind of ship. Yeah. So uh, you talk about how the art's really good in this, and I absolutely agree with you. Um, I do have like one little nitpicky thing that on the very first page of this issue, we see a uh, Benzite crewman kind of standing up while uh, Shelby shows up on the bridge or the uh, whatever they call the bridge on, oh, the, right. the space station. on the space station. I thought those guys always had to have that little smoke machine on their chest, uh, <laughs> like in that episode of the Next Generation when Wesley's taking yeah. his exam. Yeah, his, uh, his buddy at uh, the Academy. Yeah, I can't remember his name. Mort, Mort, Morton. So yeah. uh, I can't remember. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I thought they always had to have that little breathing apparatus. Right. And I kind of remember that same alien being used in Deep Space Nine as kind of like a background character. Hmm. And I'm trying to remember if they had the breathing apparatus there, and I, uh, they weren't a main character, so I don't remember it that well. But I'll have to go back and check. But yeah, I, I was expecting to see the little smoke and him blowing into it. <laughs> so there on page, uh, these are actually page numbered, which is nice. Four, page four. Mm-hmm. See, you can see the registration number of the ship is NCC two six five seven A or five one seven dash A. Yeah. So it's not a continuation of the. Uh, uh, Ultimate Computer episode Excalibur, which blew up there, which had a different registration number. 
Right. But it is interesting that it has the A. Yes, it is. Because apparently when you become cool enough, when the captain and the crew does celebrated things enough, they actually start using the letters. Right. So until now, I always assumed that was just the Enterprise, the flagship. Mm-hmm. But obviously not. Nope. They, they, they have attained greatness. Because was, there wasn't a Defiant in the, uh, the original series, too, right? In the Tholian web? Wasn't it the Defiant that got sucked into the uh, alternate time, or sucked into the uh, spatial rift or whatever? Hmm. Uh, and it, it had a different registration than the, DA, the Deep Space Nine Defiant has later on. Yeah. Well, that's really a different ship. Different class of ship, but it's yeah. the same name. I mean, Well, it's the same name, but, I mean, come on. Now, what... Okay, so Defiant. De- De- Defiant, what, that wasn't an NX-2, was it? Or was it? I think uh, I think when uh, started when it first showed up in Deep Space Nine season four or whatever, mm-hmm. I think it did have a uh, NX registration. It should have because it was a one of a kind at first. Right. It was the the first, It was like a board buster type thing because they were building it to uh, fight off uh, the Borg. Borg. Right. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I think I know. I think it was seven four two zero five, but I can't remember if it was NCC or NX. Oh well, we'll have to look it up later. Seven four two zero five. I remember because uh, I was born in nineteen seventy four and the twenty fifth of the month, so <laughs> I was always able to remember that one because it kind of fell in line with my birthday. Wow, that's impressive. <laughs> And by the way, the Defiance um, registry is NX seventy four two zero five. Ah, so it was NX. Even even it, NX. It, it never went back to NCC. Uh, I just did a search, and it's showing um, only NX. Huh. So even so, when it was, when it, when it was it, blown up, yeah, I was just gonna say during the during the wars. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Hmm. Or was it an A also? I don't know. I don't know, but I don't think they give NXs A's, do they? Well, why not? I mean, Deep Space Nine, come on. Well, also, I mean, I mean, if we're really getting nitpicky here and off-subject, yeah. but the Excalibur, or not Excalibur, the Excelsior mm-hmm. in Star Trek Three was NX-2000. Uh, but then by the time Sulu is captain, I think it is NCC-2000, if right. I'm not mistaken. And you'd think that, because that was a standard ship by that point. But it was the same ship, right? I don't I mean, know. It's not, it's not like they, that the NX-2000 was destroyed and then they you know, rechristened a new ship, NCC-2000. I don't know. But uh, that's something we could look up. Well, we kind of skipped over the uh, whole DC run of... Uh, of of the comics, which we'll have to get back to one of these days, but uh, you know, after Star Trek Three was was released, they started a new comic book series uh, set in between the time frame of Episode Three, uh, or Search for Spock and the and the Voyage Home. So, I, like we were talking about earlier, they had no idea what the next movie was going to be, so they had to give Kirk a ship, and the Enterprise just blew up. So they gave him a Ex- Excalibur. I mean, uh, Excelsior. Hmm. So for the, almost the whole run of that first uh, volume uh, 
of uh, of Star Trek comics. He's captain of the uh, uh, Excelsior. Hmm. And then you know, in, in Star Trek Four, it's established that you know none of that comic book series could have happened because they've been on Vulcan this whole time, and they're still in that Rom. Uh, Klingon ship, and then they get the Enterprise A at the end. So, right. that's we'll talk about it when we when we get to reading those comics. They're they're good comics, but they kind of hard to stick them into true continuity because he is captain of a ship that he's never captain of in the in the movies or anything. Yeah, but but quite frankly, didn't they always didn't the uh, folks in charge of the movies and TV shows pretty much say you know the books are the books and you. I mean, we're not going to adjust our storylines to uh, be in alignment with any other medium. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, so Star Wars, uh, you know, because there was only three movies for the longest time, uh, starting in, like, 1990, uh, they said anything that comes out with the Star Wars name did happen. So all the comic books, all the novels have this great continuity because everything that could happen in one book had some ramifications in in all the other books. Oh, really? Uh, right. So, Lucas, so who, was, who was the continuity master? Lucas? Uh, Luke, uh, probably not Lucas himself, but uh, uh, Lucasfilm, yeah. They have they have to approve everything that comes out. Wow. And at one point, they wanted to kill off Luke Skywalker. So they had this, this storyline where Luke Skywalker basically was going to die. And uh, he said no. He's <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, no, you're not going to kill him. He's like... But they're like, but we want to kill somebody because we want to show that this is a really dangerous universe. It's not everybody's going to live at the end. It's right. not like Star Trek where everybody's going to live at the end. And so they were, they're like, who can we kill? <laughs> so they killed Chewbacca. Oh, no, yeah. not Chewbacca. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, he dies in uh, Star Wars. Um, uh, was Vector Prime. Hmm. Uh, he, he, he gets crushed by a moon. So it's a, it's an honorable death. He gets crushed by a what? A moon. A, a moon, <laughs> like like our moon. Kinda. Uh, basically, he he's on this planet that's that this uh, this alien race has put this like basically a a small black hole generator uh, on the on on the planet that's actually pulling the moon down closer and closer to the planet uh, every rotation. Uh-huh. Uh, and so, they of course nobody realizes it till the very end what's going on. So they're evacuating the uh, planet uh, right as the last minute when the moon's about to actually, you know, hit the hit the atmosphere of the planet and basically cause this huge shockwave that's going to kill everybody. And at the last minute, he uh, he uh, sacrifices himself to get uh, Han Solo, one of Han Solo's children on board, and then the Millennium Falcon has to take off. Otherwise, everybody's going to die, and Chewbacca just stands there and, and dies. <sighs> It's quite sad, but uh, I thought I don't know, it had a lot of ramifications for the novels and comic books that came afterwards. So it, it was it was a good storytelling uh, event, but it was sad that he'd had to die. That's terrible. But man, are we uh, off topic? <laughs> That's a different franchise, sir. Yes, it is. yes, but sir, a different franchise, sir. Okay. So I uh, only thing I wanted to talk about was Solita, the the Romulan Vulcan. Mm-hmm. Who gets naked in this one? Mm-hmm. So, uh, so there is sex in the comic books, uh, or almost sex. I know. I think. Th- I think there is. I mean, I, baby Saquon had to come from somewhere, sir. <laughs> <laughs> but but it's like Kirk sex. 
you know, they always insinuate, infer. Well, actually, that's what I was going to talk about. That character, Solita, was introduced by Peter David when he wrote the that young adult series. We talked about it in an earlier episode, mm-hmm. uh, which was basically Worf going through the Starfleet Academy. Uh, one of the his friends at the in Starfleet Academy was uh, Solita, and mm. she was uh, a Vulcan. And uh, I, I used to have these books somehow when I moved, you know, here or there. I've somehow lost it. Mm-hmm. But uh, that book has – in one of those books, it talks about her mother being raped by a Romulan. Uh, it doesn't say that she is the outcome of that uh, that raping, but – uh, she does find out that she's raped. That her mother got raped by this Romulan, hmm. uh, which later on, after after the uh, double time, what was that first one called? Double time. Double time, yeah. Yeah. So sometime after that story and and before this one, she is discovered that she is actually the the uh, daughter of that Romulan who who raped her mother. So, hmm. but but again, like you said, sex in the comic books. I mean, that was a kid's book. <laughs> and it was talking about how her mom got raped in a kid's book. So, mm-hmm. uh, so, anyways, I wish I still had those. I'll have to try to find them somewhere. eBay or something. Hmm. All right, so uh, I've monopolized a lot of this one. Uh, anything you have to say about it? <laughs> oh, just that uh, when I was first reading about uh, Morgan who is some kind of a computer-generated thing. I was thinking, well, she must be like the doctor or something. Uh, or uh, she reminded me of Katana in Halo. So I was like, what the, what the heck's the deal? So uh, it was interesting you giving more information about her being a, uh, an immortal of some kind. When her body dies, it needs to go, her soul needs to go somewhere. So, um, that was, so that's an interesting spin on the idea of a uh, computer entity. Right, and especially when we see later on where it kind of shows that, you know, she kind of, they kind of play up in this storyline that her little statement about not yet being all powerful or whatever, right. or being the most powerful being in the in the universe or whatever. I forgot what Calhoun actually says. But no, uh, and I, I need to go back and read those books and find out how exactly she she fits into all that. I just don't have the time, man. I'm reading all these comic books. <laughs> if I just had the uh, complete knowledge of the entire uh, written works of Star Trek plugged into my brain, I would know all. It's true. You would. All right. So um, I guess that's it for this, this, this episode, unless you have anything else. Um, Not really. Uh, I did like the Romulan uh, stealth ship. I thought it was kind of cool looking. It was a very unique design. Uh huh. Yeah, I kind of like how the uh, how the wings reminded me uh, a little bit of actually a Klingon design, but you know how some of those um, those Klingon bird of prey's had the uh, it almost like a wing kind of structure that came out the side and then at the tips pointed downward, and that's where the guns were. This one seems to take that idea and fold the wings even further those into more of a, a loop. Well, I thought that the Next Generation Kling, uh, Romulan ships did go into a little loop. Well, that, well, well, okay, hold on. I, okay, so you're saying like the big 
the big uh, cruiser ships. Uh, yeah, I do agree with that. I mean, it was like it was like a big oval kind of kind of structure. Okay, uh, which looks which is cool. It's just that this isn't quite that. So yes, it's not. Uh, yeah, I totally see what you're saying now. Like on so, page, it's page thirteen. Is the the page I'm looking at at the moment? Oh yeah, no, that's a better picture. I, I was looking at it later on when it actually loses its cloak, but now this is definitely a better picture. It is a pretty cool looking ship. Yeah, interesting designs. Yeah, so whoever what, did whoever did that ship in the uh, Paradox, I think they did a really good, really nice design job. Well, what'd you think about the? Uh, I don't want to give away what the ship is, but the the ship that. To me, it looks like a, an oil refinery that was actually docking with the Paradox there for a little bit. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what that is, and that is some. I've gone through the entire uh, five stories, of course, and I, and I don't know because I don't think we ever saw it again. Because, um, well, no, it, it the, shows up later. Does it? The yeah. other ship that um, the protagonist, and I'm not going to say who the protagonist is, although it all makes so much sense. Um, the ultimate protagonist ship is not that one. Is it not? Uh, no. Huh. At least I, I don't think it is. It doesn't look like it. Well, I'll be, because I thought it was. Well, I mean, okay. this, this uh, particular issue of ours, I think, is coming up on two hours or something by now. But I, I'm pretty sure that the look of that an hour Oh, no. Minutes, You're right. You're right. The I'm look looking at the ship is different. Yeah, I'm looking at issue five, and it's definitely a different ship. I thought it was the same ship. Huh. Yeah, because because you're right. This thing looks like like a like a big oil refinery. It looks like the um, uh, uh, the original Aliens story uh, movie. Oh yeah, like that the had the big Stromo. old huge Nostromo. That's it, Nostromo. Yeah. Good memory. Um, you know, big, tall, bulky, about as non-aerodynamic as you could have. Well, in space, you don't need to be aerodynamic. I completely agree. Ergo, the uh, board ships. But this thing really is god awful ugly. Yeah, uh, and I, and yeah, we'll talk about it more next time. But I'm still, what it was actually doing to the the uh, what it was injecting uh, into the the paradox is still a little questionable to me. Yeah, I mean, when you find out what they did to it. It's like, well, what would you need to inject something to do that? Well, anyway, we'll, we'll talk we'll, about we'll, it later. We'll talk about it in the next issue. Yeah. All right. So that's, uh, I mean, all right. So just real quick, elsewhere in Star Trek, uh, this is going to be super fast. November 2000, uh, there was a novel series called Dark Matters Book 1 and 2 came out by Christine Golden. She later on uh, was in charge of... Uh, uh, basically continuing the adventures of Voyager once it made it home. Hmm. Uh, but these two books happen while it's still out there in the Delta Quadrant. All right. Um, we get uh, one of the uh, Excalibur book three came out, uh, Reg- Reg- uh, Restoration, which is uh, was a hardcover. Um, and then uh, some uh, Star Trek Next Generation comic uh, called Killing Shadows. And a Deep Space Nine comic called In Vector. All of those were by uh, Wildstorm. And then 
March 2008, just eight years later, uh, Star Trek was maybe not uh, seeing the the best of times because there was no movies, or the movie was still a year or so out, and there was no TV show. So the only things that were coming out were comic books. So we had a Next Generation comic book series called Intelligence Gathering, a uh, this this book uh, turnaround, and. We had a series of uh, the original series called Year Four, the Enterprise Experiment, uh, which that series was kind of a, what would have happened in Year Four of Star Trek if it didn't get canceled in, hmm. uh, after the third season, which, which is a pretty good series. Uh, I actually enjoyed it. Um, each, each issue is basically an episode, so it, and it kind of like hits the reset button just like the old shows used to. Right. So there's not a lot of crossover uh, or continuity but uh, it still makes them a pretty good set of stories <laughs> and that's it cool. so we will uh, finish off Star Trek New Frontier next week uh, and then uh, we don't even know what we're doing next so we'll tell we'll, you next week we'll just figure it out we're but, just uh, winging it we're winging it so the, the next issue uh, the next episode uh, uh, of our podcast will be shorter, uh, but it'll be good because all questions will be answered. All will be known. It, it will be shorter because we won't have to go through all the backstories of all these characters. And uh, exactly, and the mo- and the story actually moves at a pretty quick pace. Yep. Okay. Well, that being said, I hope everybody uh, stuck around to the end, and uh, we'll see you next time. Sounds good. Uh, bye from uh, Diamond and Ken. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music, stories, and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes. Or friend us on Facebook at first name, ST Comic, second name, book review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. Let's get the hell out of here.